Welcome to Cottonmouth Manchester, the podcast for the city centre business community. I'm Vaughan Allen, Chief Exec of CityCo and the Manchester Business Improvement District. And this is our monthly look at what's happening in the city centre, talking to interesting businesses, talking about upcoming events and looking at how the city is performing. This episode is mostly about greening and sustainability. Later, I'll be talking to CityCo's own Gary Williams about the Flower Festival, heading your way in late May, as well as to the National Trust and to Soda City. But I wanted to start with the ESG audit and report we published in April this year. It's a project that's been underway since the middle of last year, looking at what companies in and around the city centre are doing in terms of environmental and social projects. I'm joined here by lead author Martha Gilmartin and Steve Connor of Creative Concern, who were responsible for developing the project. So thank you for joining us, Martha and Steve. So we have an ESG report for the city centre coming out. Well, it will have come out by the time this comes out. So April the 18th is being produced, obviously worked on during 2022 and commissioned by the city centre business improvement district. Um, Martha, when you were working on it, what, what are the main headlines that you picked up from the business community? What sort of things are you seeing? I think the main headline for me really was the general breadth of work that all businesses are trying to do in this space. I think for us, it was really exciting to get involved because it's the first place-based ESG report that we've actually done. So to be able to do a health check um, on the different businesses and see what they're doing, a lot of this information was readily available to us. And that's really exciting to see as well. And kind of just compiling a shared resource um, that can be shared amongst the network and um, share insights and hopefully inspiration to see what others could be doing there's some key themes that were emerging so single-use plastic um looking at zero waste of landfill and and what business is doing around climate action and it covered environmental issues as well as social and what we did see a lot of was these um esg strategies are kind of set at quite a high level so it's interesting to see how they are kind of trickling down into local businesses and what um, local businesses are actively trying to do in Manchester. So I think that's that's top line headlines um, for me. When you're looking at the research process, because obviously I know that there's a, there's a lot of reading of annual reports and then digging through and so on. Um, so talk us through the research process. How did you find out what was going on? Were some companies a bit more reticent than others? Was it easier to find some of the detail? Yeah, so the process for us really started by building a really robust framework. So looking at environmental and social um, and the areas that they'll cover. So for environmental, it was around waste, pollution and um, energy use. And then on the social side, it was more diversity and inclusion in the workplace and community action. So what we did was we worked with two amazing freelance um, researchers. It was majority just desk research. Um, and then we looked at the 300 different businesses and we kind of split that out um, time-wise. All this information was um, already in the public domain. What we start to see was certain businesses maybe had more information in one area and not in the other, depending on sector. Um, and we also saw a disparity between businesses who um, more local businesses and then the larger companies and businesses as well. Um, so what we did was we used some prompt questions for the researchers. So looking at what policies are available um, to reduce plastic waste, for example, and then they would also look into different accreditations too. So you talked about the different sort of the national companies and the local companies. I mean, I, mean, I guess one of the issues with city centre business community is the vast majority of companies there are national, if not international. So particularly if you're a retailer, it's not about a local manager being able to have a choice about what your ESG policy is going to be. Um, did you did you find some examples where it was actually being driven locally and, and by local stores? Or was that something that was really hard to hard to discover? It was in terms, we saw a lot in the social impact space. So especially in banking and other sectors. Um, so Lloyd's um, for example partnered with homes england um in i think back in 2021 and it was a program to try and tackle future skills gap in construction um, and they had workshops that were actually based in and around manchester and then they're looking at rolling them out so young people can be involved in um construction and real estate as well 
Um, so we found a lot more in that space, but that's not to say that local businesses aren't doing this. It's just to say that we weren't able to find it online. So I think that that's one thing going forward and hopefully that this uh, report will do is share it amongst network and also people open a conversation, see what other, others are doing in that space and hopefully inspires others as well. Steve, you wanted to jump in at that point. Go on. I was just, just going to say the, one of the great things about being able to do this report with you um, is that it obviously throws up a number of things that we could tackle in the future. And, and um, as Martha's said, because the larger national and international corporates have got whole teams that dedicated to ESG, it's easy to find a lot of strategy and policy and action in that space from them. Um, and it's, you can imagine that smaller and independent and locally based companies are less well represented in the ESG space. But it doesn't mean they're not doing anything. Um, and so I think a, a follow-up challenge is to dig a bit deeper into those smaller companies. But then there's also, I think, a, a challenge back at them, which is easy to assume that you're really hot on environment and social issues just because you're small. And actually, I, I think they should prove it. Um, they should look at uh, a Nando's or a Greg's and um, what they're doing on responsible sourcing, thinking, are we as good as them? Are we all, by virtue of being small, are we just... Yeah, assume that we're good. So I think it's a really interesting challenge to work on a bit more. Yeah, that was one of the things I wanted to ask, um, I mean, Martha particularly. There are some interesting names that you wouldn't necessarily associate with actually quite advanced ESG stuff going on here in, in terms of brands and also in terms of the sectors. I don't I think when we were originally talking about we wondered what we could find in the jewellery sector, for instance, but actually we found a fair amount. And if people weren't doing environmental stuff, they were doing the social stuff and they were working on diversity of employment and, and so on. Um, what were the things that surprised you most? Was there something that you hadn't actually seen before in, in previous bits of research that you've done? I think the, the main focus for jewellery that we found was responsible sourcing. So Boodles and Beaverbrooks are both uh, members of Responsible Jewellery Council, which is global commitment to sustainable supply chains. Also with jewellery, um, we saw that there's a lot of social impact work going on. So David Robinson, for example, he's really active in Manchester and has been for many years. And he's also a founding partner of the Onside Youth Zones um, and Mappin and Webb as well. Um, during the COVID pandemic, they the parent company uh, supported the Trussell Trust food banks um, in many of the areas where they have stores so that was also applied to Manchester and um, where they where they have a store as well so they were partnering with um, food banks locally in Manchester. Yeah which is probably not something that they're actually making a huge amount of um, fuss about them doing and stuff that uh, maybe they should be a little bit more as, as an example for others. Um, I mean one of the things that we are intended to do with this is sort of take this as our baseline and, and then move on and um, bring together a group of city centre businesses and say, okay, this is what you're already doing, or this is what your peers are already doing. This is, this is what, um, what would be good to happen next. Um, from your point of view, Steve, what do you think would be good to happen next? What do we need to see more of? Um, and how can this work develop? So if we did it again in two, two, three years time, and probably Martha will shoot me if I suggested she'd do it again in two or three years time. Um, what would we like to see at that point? Well, I, th I think just to follow up on your last question, then we'll talk about what we do next. I, th I think it is worth um, flagging up that some of the brands that are doing the most on um, social and environmental impact are brands that perhaps through a slightly snobbish Chalkneister lens, you might think are bad brands, and yet they are the ones that are really making the running. And, and I think it's worth naming them. So you know, Greg's, Nando's, Five Guys, Donashack, for example, in, in food and beverage sector, are really, really good. And, and they're working really, really hard on ESG. And I, all of them could be doing better. But I think it's, it's some of the, the sort of large, big, high street brands that, you know, your average Waitrose shopper might turn their nose up and walk past are actually doing some brilliant bloody work. Um, uh, so I think it is worth reminding people that some of those big brands are working really, really hard. In terms of what could come next out of all of this, I think it was really interesting to look at the larger national and international brands where there was a seamless continuity uh, of their global commitment to ESG and their actions on the ground in Manchester. Um, and, and that it would be uh, quite amazing to see that becoming more of a norm. 
Um, the obvious one to cite in that space is Patagonia, um, where we all know that Patagonia recently sold um, to the planet by its founder. <laughs> Amazing thought. Um, the, um, the, the, they have a, a global commitment on sustainability in particular, but um, their high street store in Manchester is working really, really hard on local initiatives. And I think one thing coming out of all of this, yes, we've got a baseline for the Manchester bid to work on uh, and to raise the general performance of the city centre and the SG. But I think there are some great examples of global brands doing great work with local partnerships um, and local charities and NGOs. And I think that is a space that I personally love to see flourish. Yeah, you get the impression sometimes from some of this that you know there's one element of a business that has started, but it hasn't been worked through. Having spent two, a couple of hours yesterday with the team behind Co-op Live, who effectively all the way along the supply chain from the from the building out to how they're going to produce tours to what they're going to serve. The lovely idea, they're not going to serve fruit shoots. They've got Robinsons to actually serve juice on tap for the first time. Um, it's thinking through all of those smaller things, which possibly, I think, Steve, if you have a purely top-down initiative, you're not making the best use of your staff and the ideas that the staff might have. And you're probably only copying other companies an awful lot of the time. Would that be fair to say that you're doing what's trendy at different times? Yeah. In terms of top-down approaches to ESG globally, um, there's nothing, there's actually nothing wrong with copying other people in your sector that um, are considered leaders. And corporate action on some issues like deforestation as a partnership is stronger than doing it on your own. So um, if you've signed up to um, uh, some of the global compacts on anti-deforestation, you'll be in a cohort of a big chunk of the FTSE 500. So, and, that, and that's good. And the group action in that space is quite powerful. But yeah, but going harder and further on things like circular economy, circular economy ideas, um is powerful um, and being more bespoke and more true to your actual unique supply chain in that space i think is more powerful as well and um, the other thing that strikes me from the esg health check that we've done for the city center and uh, which by its very nature and by the nature of the bid is dominated by food and beverage retail um a, a little bit of financial is that there are other sectors operating in Manchester and Greater Manchester, that we could almost draw even more inspiration from. And I think that would be an interesting exercise to do as well. So rather than just keep it within the walled garden of the bid and city co, um, you might want to look to inspiration for some of the real sustainability leaders in, in the wider city region, where there are some amazing people and organisations working really hard. So one example would be Manchester City Football Club. Um, where I think the work that Pete Bradshaw and his team at City do on sustainability and social impact is pretty much as good as I've ever seen. Um, it's amazing. And so I think we could, uh, again, as another follow-up to this report, draw more inspiration from sports, property, tech, um, and digital, and, and, and actually bring some of that into play as well. That would be really interesting to, to sense check against those other sectors. It's the report, obviously, we were we were sort of time limited and I guess resource limited as well. Um, I mean, Martha, as you started, as you were working through it, if we'd had unlimited resources, where possibly could the research have, have taken you? Where where could we have discovered uh, more things? What else could we have done? I think so. Obviously, we worked um, with information that was already readily available. Like you said, we did have very limited time. Um, so the time that we had between the researchers, the best way for us to do it was to limit research time per company. Um, but I think if we had more time, more resource, we could actually start reaching out directly to two companies, see you know what, what they are doing, especially the, the more local one where we didn't find much information online already, reaching out, working with them, seeing, seeing what they're doing um, rather than just desk, um, desk research. Hopefully we'd have also found from that a lot of enthusiastic people coming out of it, which is, which is I guess, the, the next stage too. Yeah. Um, Overall, Steve, are we getting the sense that most companies feel now that they have to have an ESG policy or strategy? And how do we determine which are the ones that are sort of genuine, in quotes, and which are the ones that are just done because they feel for their investors they have they have to do it? Yeah, so well, there's, there's, there's a lot to get into on that question, Vaughan. Um, so you've got about a minute and 30 seconds. So, so um, the... The what's called sometimes called green hushing rather than greenwashing is where you 
make a big noisy sound about how sustainable you are and then quietly scramble off into the undergrowth and don't do anything about it or don't seek to measure it. Um, most of the companies that we looked at for this research report are publishing and measuring and reporting on their impact. So it's quite hard for them to, um, to, to undertake any greenwash. And there is now, thankfully, a national and an EU framework on green claims that means that it, it's much harder now than people might think to just do greenwash and then think it's all, all okay. Um, but there obviously are some that we didn't find enough, did we, Martha? So we didn't find enough information. And some people that, you know, had very little on um, climate crisis and climate impact and energy maybe had quite good on, on social impact. So I think there's sort of varying levels of success across the businesses that we looked at. Um, but I, I also think that, uh, and we referenced this in the report, the pressure for brands and businesses to take ESG more seriously is being exerted every single level. So at the investor level um, and at board level, it is a very, very important factor now. Um, and it is weighing very big investment funds in particular in terms of where they choose to deploy their funds. Um, management uh, and staff and talent is massively influenced by this as well. So the latest reports show that 74% of graduates want to work for a company that takes social and environmental issues seriously. So if you want to recruit people, they want to go and work at somewhere that's good and not desperately evil. Um, and then consumers are now showing that they, they put social and sustainability issues pretty high, higher than, you know, their, their, their sort of financial aspects of their life or their personal health. They actually say caring about the planet is quite a big headline issue for them now. So at every single level for companies, um, this is a, an issue that they're feeling significant pressure on. And for reminder of you, if you're um, a, quote, an ordinary person working for a big company, um, how are you actually making sure your company is doing this stuff? Where are you finding out this information before you make those decisions about, I mean, we're hearing the same thing from landlords that potential tenants are also asking these questions and it's not just about the building it's about other stuff as well so where are you best able to find out accurate uh, and truthful information and make decisions around that well i think through this report we found that uh, a lot of the city center companies publish a pretty good and fairly transparent amount of information online so i think if you were thinking about working in any one of these sort of sectors or any of these companies doing your own research into them is perfectly viable finding out you know how well they're viewed we did do some cross-checking didn't we martha with ethical consumer uh which is a brilliant research organization and magazine based here in manchester and um and and they're absolutely brilliant i mean absolutely ruthless forensic examination of companies in terms of the claims they make and so you, you could turn something like them um and, and do some research and i think if you're already in a company and you want to know you know, is it doing all that it could on ESG? I think it's worth flagging up that most of the larger companies and brands um, have employee engagement schemes where they encourage people to get involved, whether it be a, a, an employee scheme that's trying to do more on sustainability, volunteering programs, being part of a, a champions network within your company on these sorts of issues. I think there are, there are some of the better companies have got really good ways of engaging their teams in taking ESG more seriously. Thank you very much indeed. And uh, obviously, as this is, as I said, just the baseline, it's a topic that we will be revisiting, not least this year, but um, for many years to come, I should think, unless the climate crisis resolves itself in the next few weeks. Thank you both to Steve and Martha for joining us. Thank you both. Joining us now for the City Centre headlines is Business Improvement District Manager, Phil Schultz. Phil, how do we measure footfall in the city centre? How do we know what's going on? We've got, uh, thanks for we've got a couple of systems we use. Um, the first of these is called a beam camera, which we have five of them dotted around the city centre. So it essentially picks up when you walk past, when you come in in the morning, and if you popped out and get a lunch to get a sandwich, it would uh, record you then. And then we have another system we're trialling at the moment that is more based on Wi-Fi and your mobile phone. It's all GDPR compliant, um, but that tracks you around um, the city centre as well. So we've got a couple of different areas, but it's uh, mostly the footfall sensors that we've been using using for about the last 10 years. And I guess one of the problems at the moment is working out where you're comparing to, given we're still COVID uh, comparisons. Um, how are we choosing when you compare to? 
Yeah, that's a, a really good question. I'm looking forward to only ever using one set of comparable stats. But at the moment for our businesses, we provide two sets of information. So firstly, we compare to pre-COVID, so 2019, before the world went mad, if you like. And then um, we're also now comparing year on year. I think the key thing to say as well is the information that businesses like is the same month versus the same month in the previous year. So it's not necessarily month on month, March versus February. It's more March this year versus March last year or March this year versus 2019. That's a really important point. Cool. So how have we been doing over the first quarter of the year? So the really good news on those two spits, if you like, versus 2019, the city or in terms of recovery is nearly back to where it used to be. Um, so we've been running now at about minus 20, but it, it varies. And I think the, the key thing there is so 80% of the footfall that we had before pre-COVID is back in the city. At the weekends, it's actually up. So the big change that we've noticed for a long time now, and we look back against the COVID period, is Mondays, Fridays are not quite what they were, but the weekends are busier. So that commuter, 7 to 9 o'clock in the morning, is nowhere near where it used to be. People have clearly changed the way they come into the city and what they're doing. But that's everything we read about hybrid working. But yeah, that minus 20 overall is about the same as where the other UK major cities are. So Manchester has come back in the same way. Yes, we've heard a lot about the hybrid working and obviously the transport problems, which maybe we'll talk about next time, uh, also have an effect on the number of people in the city. Um, But what are we seeing in terms of, so that's footfall, what are we seeing in terms of sales and transactions and actually what's happening in retail and food and beverage and so on? Yeah, so an overall picture, again, I think, um, just about the footfall actually, I meant to mention what's happening versus last year. So this period last year, we were coming out of, thank God, the uh, Omicron phase. We were up against that last year. And the really good news now is both on the footballers really shot up versus last year, the sales have proved pretty positive as well. There's one category that stands out of all others, which is food and drink. So hospitality, um, number of reasons. I think as a business closes, it's often replaced. A fashion business may be replaced with a, with a food business. Uh, I think just genuinely people are spending more on leisure and food than they are on clothing or, or groceries. So that, that category has more people using their cards more often in more locations. So that's been very strong versus pre-COVID and versus last year. The other categories are more mixed. So our major categories are, are showing, I think, a trend that you read about the papers. And if you um, dig into it a little bit, what you tend to see is it, it looks on first glance very, very positive. Um, we've got generally a plus 7, plus 8% sales. But really, most of that is actually inflation. If you dig beneath that a little bit, the number of transactions that are actually being used, the number of customers that are actually using the cards is pretty flat. So an example, a big national company that's done its results the last couple of weeks, Tesco's, uh, its results actually on first glance are really good. Actually, its profits have halved. So energy costs, staff costs, everything have really um, climbed over the last year. The amount they're actually selling other than inflation is pretty flat. So you have to dig beneath the numbers a little bit, and that's what most of our retailers uh, are saying to us. So it's good. It's not quite as good as it first was. But still better in terms of sales and transactions than it is in terms of footfall. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. And then more broadly, what is the general feeling? What was happening in terms of lettings, uh, new stores coming in, new F&B? You suggested there was that sort of gentle, gentle drift to F&B continuing. Um, what's the feeling within retail? Are we bottomed out in terms of close use, do you think? And we, are we starting to see some new brands coming in? Yeah, I think cautious optimism. The city centre never gets any easier. You never get a retailer saying it's easy. But I think Manchester City Centre, in comparison to most other major cities, has fared pretty well. So we've got Manchester Rando with a lot of new openings. King Street, we've seen a very diverse set of openings, uh, now coming different sectors, different types of shops, different types of experience, uh, really coming in across the city centre. So it's quite a vibrant place. I think that picks up that Manchester's not just here for its locals, but the visitor economy, the airport bouncing back, people coming in from further field for all the events. That is Manchester. So um, with everything that's come on the rise with new arenas and everything else, most of the retailers are, and hospitality operators are quietly confident that we should be here for a long time. Fingers crossed. Excellent. Thank you. We'll hopefully be talking to some of those new brands coming into the city in future months. Thank you, Phil. Next up, we look at greening across the city centre with Howard Bristol of the National Trust and Kieran McGlasson of So the City. The National Trust have got huge plaudits for their work with the Castlefield Viaduct, currently gorgeously in bloom. And So the City is a Manchester-based social enterprise that aims to make the city healthier, greener, and as they put it, Full of beans. Um, Kieran, let's start with you. Can you give us a bit of the background to So the City, what you're doing in Manchester, what you're doing in the city centre, and so on? Yeah, sure. Um, well, firstly, thank you for having So the City along to this podcast. It's really, really nice of you to ask. Um, my name's Kieran. I'm a director of So the City. Uh, so we're a social enterprise. We exist for uh, people and planet. Um, we were established in 2009. Um, literally with a few um, packets of seeds and a few bags of compost. And then I've set on this crusade to help green up 
Manchester and Greater Manchester and 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 get people involved in things like food growing and accessing nature, that kind of thing. Um, since the early days of few packets of seeds and compost, we were out on a journey via schools, some of whom we still work with. Loads of community-based work with people in need. Um, in the last couple of years, we've been really honoured to take part in a national green social prescribing project for NHS England. So that's getting people from GP surgeries to grow food, access nature. And latterly, and we still are, we're helping the mayor deliver his manifesto, which is all about creating new green spaces or enhancing existing ones for our communities of greatest need. Some of which are maybe not in the city centre, but are right adjacent to it in some of the areas I can tell you about. Latterly, we've been working with uh, Howard and the National Trust um, on projects like the Castlefield Viaduct, which has been hugely rewarding. So bringing a bit of greenery into the city centre and what we're talking about today. And we're currently involved also in greening up the uh, printworks roof and creating a garden space up there. Which started with, well, I think, one beehive about eight years ago, because I can rem I can remember the then director constantly ringing me up and going, do you know anybody that can tell me what's happening with my bees? That's um, it. So that's yeah. certainly expanded a lot. Thank you for that, Kieran. And we'll come back to some of those. Um, Howard, most people obviously think of the National Trust in terms of old houses, bits of coastline, that sort of thing. So what are you doing in the city centre? Yeah, and we are absolutely about those things. But we're also, we are also about nature, beauty and history. And I think people forget that the National Trust was originally set up in 1895, um, kind of almost in, in response to the industrialisation of uh, cities as part of a campaign for city centre green spaces, um, with our one of our co-founders, Octavia Hill, calling for um, open air living rooms. So to some extent, this is return to our roots. And um, we're working in partnership with finding new ways of working in cities. And one of the ways that we're doing that is through Castlefield Viaduct, which um, some of you might have heard of. It's a new temporary, currently temporary green space for the city centre. You, if you haven't visited yet, I think I definitely recommend, recommend a visit. Um, we've been working so the city on that. And they've got um, a, a space that they've taken over, which is a great showcase for their, for their work in the city. We've also um, launched a, a Blossom Trail this spring, the Bloomtown Trail after Manchester's kind of Boomtown history, showcasing 30 of the places that you can experience Blossom uh, in the city this spring. We've also got a pop-up Blossom display at Sandler's Yard as part of that. So check it out whilst you, whilst you can. Uh, and is the intention that that becomes a, an annual event? So we'll be challenging Japan soon for the intensity of our Blossom festivals. I think the short answer is yes, we would love it to become an annual event. Um, so kind of watch watch this space. Yeah, it's, it's been interesting since you actually did that sort of based in Manchester, the number of smaller towns and, and cities around the country that I've actually seen have done something sort of similar. Um, so it's it's very zeitgeisty blossom at the moment, I think. I'm not quite sure why, but... Um... I think it's just because it's such a, it's such a kind of great um, moment in nature's calendar for people to connect with nature. We're all coming out of hibernation and it's one of the first things that people see a spot so it's a really great opportunity for people to get out and, and enjoy nature absolutely i mean i think generally there there's a perception that manchester particularly the city center isn't uh, a massively green space or as or as green as it could be um kieran do you, do you think that's true um is what is what you're doing making a difference to that well, with, without sounding too rude to the listeners, I, I think generally Manchester can be quite grotty in parts um, as a whole. And then when you get to the city centre, it's obviously a place that has um, in the past been very industrialised and murky and dark satanic mills and all that kind of thing. And then sort of like being replaced by this huge mega development of the last 20, 25 years where we've almost the mills have been replaced with the skyscraper. With all of that, with lots of bricks and buildings and smoke and cars and everything like that, there's often nature's kind of got pushed to the side and is kind of just um, an afterthought in a lot of times. So, yeah, I would absolutely agree with that, with, with all due respect to the um, pressures of a city centre area. But, yeah, I think, you know, greenery is good and let's get more of it in there and more complementary. I think when I when we first came into post, when I first came into post at City Go, one of the first things we did was actually uh, a guide to pocket parks or a guide to the potential for pocket parks around the city. Um, and some of that was pointing out where there were little spaces. Ardwick Green, as I bore my staff and various people with, is 
one of the loveliest spaces, I think, albeit right next to the A6. Um, and it's actually, um, while agreeing with the point that we're not as anywhere near as green as we could be or should be, and we're doing a load of work around that, actually also pointing people to where there are spaces mm. is, is a really, really important thing. Howard, for you, I mean, opening the, the viaduct, um, it's becoming better known, but have you been surprised by um, people just aren't expecting this sort of thing to be in the middle of somewhere like Manchester City Centre, which they assume is going to be grey and industrial and so on? Yeah, I think um, I think people have really it's gone down really well. I think is the is the kind of um, the headline in the first six months we've had something like twenty five thousand um, visits, and that's actually in relatively constrained ways, and just in that it's it's it's, it's a fragile, uh, beautiful hulk of a structure that can only take certain number of visitors, um, but it's been really really popular, and I think it kind of just demonstrates the demand for um, green space. I think as as Kieran says, it's possibly if, if you ask someone on the street, I don't think they would say that Manchester is a particularly green city. I think it's all sorts of colours. It's a vibrant city. It's a colourful city, but actually, I'm not sure that green is is the colour that you would describe it as. Um, and I think you know, cities making great strides in terms of uh, green space. We've got Mayfield, which has just opened. Um, got Castlefield Viaduct as well and we've been working with um, Noma as well who are kind of thinking differently about how they manage their kind of public space and giving people more opportunities to um, to get involved but with you know there are 50,000 people now living in the city centre um, when there were only 500 previously and actually there's just a lot of com competing demand on uh, space so it's sort of not surprising if people feel uh, feel the need for green space and really appreciate it when it's there. Yeah, it's an interesting one. You, I mean, you mentioned this, Kieran, as well, um, working with the NHS and so on. Um, th there's a sort of intuitive feeling that more green space, more greenery, more openness makes people healthier. Um, uh, and it's more than just making them feel better. Um, is there actual evidence for that? Has there been research into that? Oh, my word. There is huge amounts of evidence, uh, Vaughan. And a lot of it stemmed from studies by a chap called Roger Ulrich in the 1980s, who did all kinds of um, research surveys on hospital patients of you know, like similar demographics and, and their recovery times when looking at a brick wall and, and, and those that were looking out over um, images of forests or views of forests and trees and flowers and stuff, you know, huge um, sort of like um, increases in recovery time, speed and to the quality and stuff like that. You know, e even sort of like looking at a sunflower or a tree reduces cortisol, the stress hormone, um, you know, on our on, on, that can be found on our skin and in our bodies. And it's been found in like Scottish neighbourhoods, for example, that high cortisol levels are related to lower levels of green space. Um, there's been studies in the Netherlands, Japan and Canada that show just even a 10% increase to green space translates to living five years longer. And that's a, a King's Fund study from, from 2016. Um, so the term that Roger um, Ulrich termed in about 1984 was biophilia. And biophilia is fascinating because it's actually where we come from as a species. You know, we, we've been a human being in our current form for about 250,000 years, I think, without knowing the history too well. You know, for if you follow me for... If we equate 250,000 years to one week, for six and a half days of that week, we were reliant on forests for our shelter, food, warmth, and that sort of thing. So our DNA is still directed towards the forest, even though we're now an increasingly urbanized species, I think, for the first time we've tipped 50% more urbanized. Um, so we still react positively to nature automatically. We don't react like that to bricks. So huge amounts of evidence out there and um, that has been the basis and platform for a lot of our work around mental health and and the NHS. Yeah Howard I mean I would assume that I mean where you are with the viaduct um, with the blossom stuff I mean part of that and I've been up to, up to the viaduct a couple of times now I mean part of that is the wonder of being able to step out of an office and five minutes later be wandering down this um, strange street in the sky that is just, I mean, particularly the last few weeks is, is just absolutely incredible. I mean, are, are you are you seeing people who are using it regularly? And are you are you sort of then expanding into, I don't know, the wellness space with yoga and all of that sort of stuff where being up there amongst those plants makes a significant difference to people's well-being? 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it is a space that people are using and coming back to, you know, enjoying in their lunch hour. Um, and, and I think that is partly because, as Kieran says, um, you know, people are benefiting from the, the power of plants. They're benefiting from the kind of reduced stress levels. They're benefiting from just it making them feel good. Um, so that's, that's really great. And it's giving people a space to rest and relax that they might not otherwise uh, have had. And I think in terms of activities going forwards, yeah, definitely. You know, that's all the sorts of things that we'd love to love to explore and kind of understand what people want as well. So the whole point of Castlefield Viaduct is it's a trial. What do people want if you kind of create a space like that? So feedback is is always good. And we need a National Trust Cafe there as well, of course. Really, we do need a National Trust Cafe. I think that might be in the that might be in the pipeline. In the pipeline, excellent. Um, I mean, for you then, Howard. I mean, what what sort of the next steps with the project? Is there going to be more involvement in the city centre? I mean, the Blossom obviously is not something you own particularly, but it's it's a campaign working with partners. Yeah, so in terms of the the viaduct, it's something that we're you know we're hoping that, that will be um, our pilot kind of comes to an end uh, after a year, and we're hoping to extend that actually um, for for another year. It's as part of a, a kind of larger vision um, for the space and for how that can connect up to other green spaces. So it'd be great if that connected through to Salford, through the Bridgewater Canal um, and to other parks and green spaces. We really, really want to work with um, businesses, local government and uh, other charities to kind of work out what the vision for that space should be. And we can't do it without other people's support. So that's something that we're, we're uh, going to be talking about. And in terms of Blossom, um, yeah, I mean, it's something that we're going to be developing going forward. It's a national annual campaign for the National Trust um, Blossom Watch. If you're out and you see some blossom, take a photo of it, share it using the hashtag Blossom Watch, and that's going to be developing further, absolutely. Excellent. Um, I'm Kieran, for businesses in the city centre that are listening, for employees mm -hmm. of businesses, what obviously they can't buy a viaduct necessarily and convert that, yep. um, but what can they do to contribute to making the city greener? Yeah, so I've got a number of points here. I've just been thinking as we've been talking. And as I see it, I think we can all agree that people like greenery and it benefits them. So the sort of community level, there's a demand and an aspiration for it. At the more sort of like government level, there's sort of like often a setting of policy and strategy and direction and this is what we'd like but businesses are in the middle and are often responding to both consumers and the the policy and strategy that have been set by the the governments and can make things happen and you know it's i i think you know um people live in the city center a lot of them did howard mentioned fifty thousands, but i wager a lot of those people are younger people and when they start to have children obviously children playing on a skyscraper or by a, a a busy bar or something isn't the most appropriate so building in sort of like play spaces or or even green spaces that are you know pleasant to be in for everyone but may, maybe children could be a really interesting thing to look at <laughs> be it on a roof be it as part of the developments or something like that um there's also sort of like the branding side of things, we are in climate emergency, we are in biodiversity, absolute fact. And, you know, for the future of the city to have sort of like a, a sort of green, not just an added afterthought sort of thing, but actually integral to where we're going and how we're going to address these emergencies, but also develop, you know, a, a balanced way economically. I think that is absolutely key. So to embed it. Um, and, you know, if we look at the, whatever the scope of the city centre is, you know, even if we create or have an oasis, do we want an oasis in a surrounding sea of impoverishment? You know, there are a lot of deprived communities not very far from the city centre, and it's good for business, you know, first arrivals at an airport, I would say, or the train station experience or the, the drive into a city to make it feel like it's, healthy for business and healthy for people. So a lot of the projects we support through the Mayor's Green Spaces Fund are, 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 are targeted at more deprived areas, but a lot of them are on the fringe of the city centre and they are crying out for business support because the Mayor and the wider team 
have an aspiration to try and double the value of that fund. So there's a financial element to that, of course, but there could also be things that businesses could do to support groups in an in-kind way, you know, to create spaces and manage them, even if it is management, maintenance or, or project management and that sort of thing. And my final point on, on all this, um, if I have time, is, you know, look at the impact that things like the Mayfield Park has had and the stir that that's created. When there's worries about stuff, you know, look at Brunswick Street, which they pedestrianised and turned into a park and got rid of all the cars from. Has there been a catastrophe there? No, absolutely not. In fact, I would say it's a, a really successful place now and one that is embracing greenery and development at the same sort of balance, really. Um, finally, I guess, for both of you, before I just ask where people can find out more. Howard, if there was an unlimited pot and the resources were no object... Um, how would how could we have the biggest impact on city centre greening? Yeah, I, I think apart, apart um, from probably making the viaduct forty times as big, but yes, well, I, kind of related to that, I think we need to think differently about where and how we create new green spaces, and I think you know thinking multifunctionally so actually green roofs uh custom and practice in other cities why not why not here green walls um, even if it's just climbers and you know um kieran referred to the the climate crisis there i feel like that's kind of almost become old news you know actually there's some really scary stuff coming up in terms of extreme heat concrete environments absorb so much heat and actually there's the, the cooling and insulating power of greenery the rhs has done some really great studies kind of looking at the, the power of plants to cool the urban environment i think that's going to be really important so green walls uh, green roofs greening every nook but actually thinking really laterally about uh gray spaces so car parks there are tons of surface level car parks some multi-story car parks underutilized actually you know does a car park always need to be a car park could it be a park for six months of the year and a car park for six months of the year could you use spaces differently to, to create new pop-up um, and or permanent uh, green spaces Excellent. and kieran for you if you've got any other desires if you had an unlimited pot yeah, sure. Well, clearly everything that Howard said, rooftops, excellent, brilliant, completely agree. And it's where you get the peace and tranquility, isn't it? Um, and, and that escape from sort of like the hectic urban life and stuff. But another idea I was just thinking of, um, thinking back to a holiday in a little Spanish town, was that they actually go down as well. So put the car park car parks down and let's have the surface level something either green or or something interesting or something like that um anything to encourage roots i, I was with um a group the other day in in a in ardwick brunswick estate who were working on one of these mayor's projects for their area but then there's a, a hell of a lot of people there and about getting them into the city center they're creating like green roots so it's not this sort of like fortress mancunian way in roads it's actually a, a pleasant way to to get in so yeah absolutely as, as as much as can be done to make you know that encourages walking encourages like people to peaceful corners and things like that and just you know instead of everything always being every square inch is a, a financial development value actually the value for people of some greenery and, and resources for them thank you and, and finally howard um where can people find out more how do they contact you if they've got ideas or will they be involved yeah, so I think if people go to the Castlefield Viaduct uh, website, that's probably the best thing to do, nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Castlefield dash viaduct. Uh, they can find out more there. Brilliant. And Kieran, how do people find out about Solar City and get involved? Yeah, sure. Well, we've um, we've we've got websites, we've got Twitter, we've got all that sort of stuff. Uh, so the city.org, you can find us. But I would always encourage people to get in touch, come and pick up a spade. Let's get some plants and let, let's, you know, both um, help create some of the green spaces that we have opportunities for at the moment. But then think a little bit more strategically as well about is there something financial or in kind or even if it's business, to, um, sorry, project management or fund, funding support for groups going forward, that would be a great way if they didn't want to get their hands dirty. Excellent. Always good to end with a call to action. Uh, thank you both for coming on. And finally, we talked to CityCo's own head of events, Gary Williams, about the Manchester Flower Festival. Gary, welcome. 
a long way from your office to where we're recording. Isn't oh, it? yeah, it's yeah, miles and miles. Huge jump there. <laughs> um, talk about the Flower Festival. What's the history of the Flower Festival? How did it come about? How's it changed over the years? The Flower Festival was an event that happened um, in the 1950s. Some of the people who are listening might sort of remember it from the 50s to the 2000s over in uh, one of the public parks and um, was very much a sort of, you know, town and country vibe sort of uh, event, very traditional flower show. Um, we brought it back in a small way um, in <clears throat> as part of the King Street Festival, um, a sort of boutique version of it um, that was just on Upper King Street on a really steep incline <laughs> in the parking bays up there uh, for many years as part of the King Street Festival. Then after... Um, COVID. We were the first event in the city uh, to come back in April 2021. And um, we were looking for an event that would be bright and colourful outdoors that people could really understand and sort of get behind and uh, that was really celebratory and fun. And we decided on making the Manchester Flower Show bigger and it has been for the last in this format of being pretty much citywide as a central core of the event in the festival zone as we call it which is in the uh, the city center retail core the Manchester Business Improvement District and then all over the rest of the city in the the city uh, the festival fringe we've had a bit of a retweak and a rebranding this year uh, from the flower show to the flower festival uh, to sort of reflect the fact that it's there isn't somebody going around with a clipboard. It's not a traditional flower fe- uh, flower show. It is a festival. It's a celebration of flowers and florists and color and excitement. It really is the start of summer in the city across the bank holiday weekend. So it will be the 26th to the 29th of May. Um, so it's the yeah. third of the many bank holidays that we've got in May. This yes, year. indeed. Yeah, we've got, you know, coronation. We've got sounds of the city happening uh, on uh, this, this weekend. And then it was excellent. So um, for visitors, what will they see? Well, if you come into the festival zone, which is sort of the central retail core, so St. Anne Square, um, Market Street, New Cathedral Street, Manchester Arndale, uh, King Street, then you'll see a real collection of fabulous floral displays. The theme this year is uh, Manchester in Flowers, so there'll be a a central trail of 10 displays that are created by community groups and florists in the city that are on that theme, celebrating Manchester history, but using flowers and plants. So we've got the Grassy Ender, it's a nightclub made out of grass. We've got a tribute to the town hall, which will be uh, taken over by um, <clears throat> by flowers and plants. We've got tributes to um, different uh, inventions and cultural icons as well. So that's our central sort of trail that will move you around the, the festival zone. We've also got live music, a stage where you can listen to talks. We've got workshops as well. And then also in between this trail, there's a selection of um, wonderful sort of uh, gardens that are created by different community groups and uh, and florists as well. And we've got the National Trust down to talk about the Castleville Viaduct and the RHS as well are there to be able to ask them questions and have a big picture in front of the RHS letters and uh, talk to them about uh, RHS Bridgewater too. And then outside of that festival zone, we also have amazing partners who um, create the Manchester uh, Flower Festival Fringe. So if you go to um, First Street, you go to the Viaduct, if you go to Sadler's Yard in Noma, uh, and um, all over the city, there'll be uh, displays that are outside of that festival zone that are definitely worth going and visiting. There's a floating garden uh, over at at, uh, Bridgewater Hall as well. So real sort of vibrant takeover of the whole city. Brilliant. And how does this fit? We've been talking about how to make the city greener as part of the podcast. How does it fit with those ambitions? Is there a legacy from it? Oh, 100%. I mean, as I'm sure you've been talking about, there's obviously sort of Mayfield, Castleville, Viaduct, all of these sort of uh, new um, gardens and places uh, as the city gets greener. Uh, The festival, hopefully, is a bit of a um, talking shop and a bit of a showcase for a lot of the, like I said, the community groups or the groups who are working to make Manchester greener. So you're in our nature, so the city, like I said, the Castleville, Viaduct and and other people who are coming down. Ardwick Climate Action we've got coming doing a rain garden uh, which is celebrating uh, celebrating the rain in Manchester but also talking about sort of climate activism and how communities can get involved in that and all of the plants and flowers get um, donated to these community groups um, so they do live on either in the city in the planters which is talking city have been sort of supporting improving the planters and working with the council and the city center to make the city generally greener across the summer but also the flowers and plants will be donated to the community groups that we work with so they do literally have a legacy so they don't all end up in a 
Skip they don't all go in a big bin. Some, I mean, a, a few other of them might. End, other a few, few of them might end up in my garden as well. But uh, don't worry about <laughs> that. Um, but yeah, it also means that you know we're placing the flower festival at the start of summer, and hopefully, you know, it's an event that you can come to and then go to the viaduct, then go to the, the you know the playground over at Mayfield. You may want to visit the Glade of Light uh, Garden, sort of uh, the Jarman Garden at the Art Gallery, and you know we are trying to sort of round up other places that you could be going and visiting um, sort of uh, in the city centre and highlighting that there is maybe a little bit more greenery in the city centre than you might think. You might just have to look for it a little bit more. Absolutely. I think it's always a struggle against the perception that Manchester is very grey and there are no parks and there's no greenery. Certainly in the last three, four years, there's been quite a transformation and the Flower Festival has been key to that. We'd like to claim anyway, wouldn't we? Um, how would you like to see it evolve over the next couple of years? I think that there's definitely... I would like to see more of these sort of uh, fringe uh, sort of areas like First Street and, you know, Noma who really contributed to it and they put on basically a mini version of the Flower Festival out in, in their public realm as well. I would like to see more uh, people sort of be putting on events that support it and more of these sort of areas in the city putting on mini versions of it and sort of plugging into the event. In the same way as we'd like to see that happen in things like Halloween and, you know, why not be putting on your own events that plug into this sort of major cultural uh, you know, event for the city that we're doing. But also, I think it has got a place in the middle of the city to then, you know, go and be able to go to the Bridgewater. Why not make it into a overnight stay or a trip uh, into the city to come and see the greener areas of Manchester and really use it as a, a focal point to maybe package up other green things that are, as you say, sort of popping up in the city. Why not come and have a green weekend in Manchester? And finally, I guess, how, how can companies, how can employees get involved? Well, I mean, you can be putting on your own floral display on and around your building uh, if you're a, a business in the city centre. Um, the deadline for uh, processing the, for, for stuff that's out on the street uh, down at the event that's making up the core part of the event has passed. But if you are a business who wants to create something on your uh, building itself, then you can be telling us about that by filling in an entry form and letting us know. Uh, even if you're putting that on yourself, you can be sort of linking into our social media and, uh, and sort of telling us that you're doing it. You'd be surprised the amount of people who do do something for the event that then don't actually tell us about it who then I sort of end up knocking on the door going is this for the flower festival and they're like, yes and then next year we get build up that relationship and sort of bring them a bit more formally into the event so yeah there's definitely always time to be getting involved in doing something creative and then telling us about it hopefully yeah so even if uh, this year you haven't done anything but you're inspired by what you see in the city it's worth then dropping you a line dropping the team a line to talk about next year because we're intending to do this Oh, for as long as the city will exist. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we've been doing a garden festival uh, as Citico in on and off in in the city centre since Dig the City Day, since the start of the business improvement district for the last ten years. So you know, and there is plans for it to continue over the next five. So uh, yeah, exactly. Get in touch and, uh, and speak to us. There's lots of opportunities. Excellent. And finally, do you want to finish with a reminder of the dates? Where can people find out more about it? <laughs> Great. Uh, yes, yeah, so the 26th uh, uh, to the 29th of May. Uh, like I said, it's free, so you don't have. To don't have to buy a ticket like a traditional flower show. You can just come straight into the city centre uh, and enjoy it. You can find out more information uh, on Visit Manchester, www.visitmanchester.com forward slash Manchester Flower Festival. Excellent. Thank you very much, Gary. And that's about it for this time. Thanks to Veronica for production and refraining from throwing things at me too often. We'll be back at the beginning of June. Well, actually, we'll be back sooner than that because we have the first of our listicle series set for release in the next couple of weeks, looking at the most influential restaurants in the city centre over the past 100 years. Until that time, you can get in touch with us by email on podcasts at cityco.com and on Twitter at CottonmouthMCR. Lots of information about everything we've talked about is on the Cityco website. All will be in the show notes.